well, damn, was there therapy in Victorian era? Victorian <laughs> <laughs> counselor. <laughs> you can literally have 20 balls and get a new dress for each ball, but you can't have a freaking therapist. Literally. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens, our podcast where we talk about feminism and pop culture. I'm Pate. And I'm Nellie. Before we dive in, we want to address the recent events that are unfolding in our country. We are currently recording this episode on Thursday, and it will air on Monday. Yesterday, chaos engulfed the U.S. Capitol as white supremacist domestic terrorists stage a coup to overturn Joe Biden's victory in Congress. A mob of Trump loyalists stormed the Capitol building and police kept their hands in their pockets. No tear gas, no rubber bullets, nothing. This is what racism and bigotry unchecked looks like. And while people died protesting for black lives and were called domestic terrorists, these MAGA neo-Nazis stormed our Capitol building with few arrests. We are all complicit in the system and that created this mess. We also acknowledge that statements like this and social media posts only do so much. We need to put our money where our mouth is. Because of this, we're putting our action items up top, and we hope you will join us in supporting the following DC organizations that are putting in the work. The first organization that we're plugging is the Palm Collective. Founded on the front lines of the protests prompted by the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, the Palm Collective is a Black-led organization that seeks to build a coalition of grassroots organizations in the DMV and beyond. They are committed to demanding forever change that will put an end to systemic racism and building an America that is for the people by the people through the power of collective action. Donate and get involved today at palmcollective.org. Our second action item organization is Medics for Justice. Medics for Justice are trained and certified first aid and emergency medical providers helping to ensure the safety of First Amendment demonstrators. If you'd like to help them purchase specialty life-saving supplies, you can follow the link tree in the bio of their Twitter at Medics for Justice. And our third uh, and our third organization we're plugging is Frontline Women DC. It's a group of DC women fighting for Black lives on the front line with the support of the community. Volunteer and donate using their link tree through their Twitter at Frontline Women DC. While Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens is not a monetized podcast, Nellie and I will be making personal contributions to these organizations, and we are making the commitment now that if this podcast ever does make any kind of money, some portion of that will always go to organizations that are making change. We encourage all of our listeners to learn more and contribute, and especially implore fellow white people to put your money where your mouth is. On a more positive note, Georgia, or Lorja, as we now know her. Nellie wrote that joke. Sorry, everyone. Uh, Lorja. <laughs> that is in honor of Kayla. Thank you. You've heard of Lorja. You've heard of Michigan. You've heard of Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs> Welcome, Lorja. I've actually never heard of that like, joke. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Is that like a it's just New from England the- joke up there? No, it's just from when the states flipped blue. 
and the in the 20, 2020 presidential election and oh, now, so long ago and it is blue in Georgia. in Georgia thanks Georgia so Democrats just took back the Senate big shout out to Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff for their win we also owe it all to Queen Stacey Abrams Queen and all the organizations who made this victory happen let's keep our foot on the gas Let's shut up and drive, Rihanna. <laughs> now, <laughs> onto this week's episode. <laughs> After taking a few weeks off for the holidays that included lots of TV and movie binging, we are also so excited to get back into the swing of things with some Netflix and Hulu originals, starting with this week's episode on Bridgerton. Based off the romance book series, The Duke and I, by Julia Quinn, Bridgerton is a Netflix series produced by Shonda Rhimes that has taken the internet by storm. Like Pate said, we are so excited to talk about Bridgerton this week, and I'm even more excited that one of my best friends, Julie Royce, is here to discuss with us. Julie is a graduate of Emanuel College in Boston, where she studied political science and was a founding member of the feminist organization on her campus. Now she works at an immigration law firm as a paralegal. Julie has an interest in electoral politics, specifically working to get to know, oh my God, specifically working to get women into positions of power. I almost said specifically working to get to know women. That's my end goal. <laughs> I just want some flesh. <laughs> I just want to meet some people. <laughs> okay. Um, we are, as, as you can probably tell, um, we are we are currently together on a state occasion. So this is a momentous occasion because it is the first time any kind of in-person recording has happened on the pod. Um, woohoo! Um, and also, we've we've been binging Bridgerton together this week so I'm super excited to talk about it together welcome Julie thank you hello um so before we start chatting I wanted to plug my action item which is fair fight which is the organization founded by Stacey Abrams um so a little bit about them they promote fair elections in Georgia and around the country encourage voter participation in elections and educate voters about elections and their voting rights bringing awareness to the public on election reform, advocating for election reform on all levels, and engaging in other voter and education programs and communications. Um, And with the obvious victories in Georgia and also the events from this past week, I felt that it was particularly appropriate. Yes. Shout out to Georgia. And shout out to Fairfax for doing. And Stacey. And Stacey, my queen. Queen Stacey. Well, great. Well, Julie, I think we'll dive into our first question that we tend to tackle um, and just kind of what got us to um, deciding the content that we're talking about this week. So what made you want to talk about Bridgerton and why do you think it is worthy of feminist analysis? Yeah, so I had watched the first episode on my own and I was thinking about it and it it is interesting to sort of look at it in a feminist lens based on the fact that it is about sort of women and women in this time frame, but it is in a fictional world. So it sort of opens the door for that like fantasy aspect and that like what if aspect, um, which I think we'll definitely like discuss um, sort of how things are like the same from like how things actually were in this time frame and 
um, but also with some more modern ideas involved. And like, I believe that that's sort of shown throughout even just the first episode. And I felt that it would be um, a good series to, to look at more critically. Nice. Well, I'm excited. I'm obsessed with Bridgerton. <clears throat> I just remember watching the first episode and I, just as a side note, I'm going to call the oldest brother Tony because I freaking hate him. And I just feel like Tony is very fitting for his character because he is the worst. So just in like the first episode, you know, I don't feel like we're still getting to know all the characters. But even then, Daphne's like treatment from her older brother was just infuriating. Um, and that really like grinded my gears. And I think that was just, like, the whole point. Like, I think it was supposed to make people mad, especially, like, young women watching. Should Like, I think they were trying to get people, like, fired up and, re like, realizing this was a reality and look how sexist and unfair it was for them. Um, and then you see, you know, people making their own choices. Daphne, spoiler alert. Like, we're going to spoil this. So if you haven't watched Bridgerton, what have you been doing with your life? Go watch it right now. Yeah. But, you know, when... Daphne charges in to the, what's it called? The duel. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was supposed to be like a critical moment of her trying to take back her own choices. Um, I mean, they were like, it, you know, problematic. Like the, her and her, the relationship with her Duke was like definitely problematic in the beginning and at times. But I think that was like really important that they showcase that because it was supposed to be like, her defying her older brother who has been sexist for, like, the first half and, like, had these terrible hypocrisy, like, not, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but, like, like, he was being a huge hypocrite saying, like, you can't date this person, but I'm gonna go have sex with this opera singer and treat her very poorly. Oof, just get me heated talking about it. Nellie, what do you think? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Antony or Tony as Tony because I do think that like when we were watching I just kept being like oh he's so hot like, <laughs> the whole time and I feel like part no. of I think it's like kind of genius that they made him like so in my opinion pleasing to look at because it, if you do take time to think critically about it I mean he has fucking mutton chops so that's not necessarily it for me but yeah. aside yeah. from that I think he's pretty nice to look at, but I actually think that that was a good job. On, and I know Shonda Rhimes did that on purpose because I think it is, in my opinion, a commentary on kind of what we'll, like kind of the ways in which we give white men a pass for their behavior and how oftentimes that's the case if they're like really good looking and also the different, the other kind of, uh, elements of privilege that kind of play into that even beyond being a white man but also being like the oldest of your family and in this case like and also like the class elements of it and so um I, I was finding myself obviously I was like oh he's so hot but then I was finding myself being like okay yeah but I hate him and I think that it allows at least for me it caused me to think a little bit critically about what I don't know, just how I think about gender and behavior. And I think it is still, like Julie said, there are themes that can really translate to, to modern day. And I think that we, 
we really do accept like kind of the bare minimum for men and also like worse than the bare minimum, like just poor behavior and also hypocrisy, like you said. So um, just because they're men, I don't know his, well, I mean, his relationship with his sister was just kind of weird in my opinion, but that's like a whole other thing. No, that made lots of sense. It makes so much sense. And then they get some milk together (laughs) in the kitchen. And he's like, that was kind of territorial of her. Both of the kind of like weird, like dad daughter complex, but then also just like another kind of weird complex. Interesting. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think we should spend too much time on this, but like, I think you could probably do a whole episode on thinking about Tony as kind of an alpha male character. Definitely. Um, And, and like, I I do understand that he has responsibilities as like the oldest man in the household and that he's having to like fill his father's role. And I understand, but at the same time, like, it's very clear that the mom is who the mom is like one of my favorite characters. And it's very Mm -hmm. clear that she's pushing back on some, societal standards or, yeah. or societal expectations I mean maybe not even expectations the expectation is still that her daughters get married and things like that um but I think she definitely prioritizes happiness over or over like status or success absolutely I definitely think she values both like I'm not going to say that like if Daphne brought home like a popper she'd be like if you're happy, yeah, go for it. Cool I don't really think that that would have happened, but I do think it's pretty interesting because I think he's like, Tony seems to have this attitude of like, I have to be this way because I'm the man of my family. And that's like not even his family's like real perspective of like how things should be. And for all we know, it's not really how his dad would have behaved. Yeah, it's very much like, you can look at you could you honestly could do a whole episode just about him but it's it, the way that he acts he's very much entrapped in like the toxic masculinity and like these societal expectations of how he thinks he needs to be acting and the way he's controlling his sisters and the way he's controlling his family that just like are simply not don't seem to be expected of him of his family and also are, are clearly the wrong thing to do is like it, it right. obviously didn't pan out well with the sort of the um the the lord um, Bearbrook oh, the Lord Bearbrook stuff yeah. off, obviously was awful and like it's because of his like um, I guess like what he thinks he needs to be doing yeah so I think that's a great transition to our second question mm-hmm. which is how is freedom and women's choice portrayed throughout the series particularly with respect to the intersection of gender and class yeah um so I, one of the first things, um, when Nellie and I, um, first finished it and we sort of chatted a little bit, um, but not super in depth. Um, one of the first things I thought was that the entire show could have just revolved around this idea of having a choice and choosing, um, because it, it really is focusing in on the idea of what people are choosing. These women, are they choosing to marry? Why are they choosing to marry? who are they choosing to marry and sort of how, why they make these choices based on their scenarios. Like for example, um, Marina is sort of not, she doesn't have choice because she's forced into this situation. She finds herself unmarried and pregnant. And in this society, she 
has the choice. She wants to marry for love. She, she wants that for herself. But um, because of her situation, she's denied that choice because how would she provide for her baby? Um, and we see that with um, uh, Featherington, the um, sort of like bringing her, you know, like trying to get her to marry an older man or trying to get rid of her um, because she's sort of trapped in this scenario. But then you also see choice as in um, Daphne when she first like becomes the, the incomparable and she has anyone's, she can have anyone's hand in marriage that she wants to. Um, and, you know, like having that choice like opened all the doors for her, but then when it was taken away from her, when she, when Marino stepped into the, the picture in that first few episodes, it was sort of like everything, everything shut down, all of her opportunities shut down because she was going to be able to make um, decisions for herself based on having the opportunity to choose who she was going to marry. Yeah, and I'm really glad that we're like, I'm, I'm glad that like we just ended up naturally talking about this afterwards because after watching because I feel like without knowing our, like this has been a theme that we've been tackling on the podcast a lot, especially in relation to like movies some movies that like in my mind like very much do kind of have similar themes of um of bridgerton but then some that very much do not like i feel like it relates to choice in in relation to like twilight and also but then also in relation to like little women um in like and there's so many things that remind me about little women like thinking about um Eloise and like I think Eloise is Joe March. I kept being like Joe Eloise. March. <laughs> um, everyone loves Eloise. She is so great, and everyone loves Penelope. And if you don't, I'll literally fight you. I will literally fight. And um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting to actually see a window into, and I, I do think this relates to something we're going to talk about a little bit later. But just like a window into, in particular. Daphne's agency throughout this especially like you said once she's given the the title of what was it the incomparable. the incomparable um because I think I, I I think she does really use her agency um in a in a, frankly a violent way in the end and so not in the end but eventually um and I think it's really interesting to see this journey of this kind of like powerless I mean powerless definitely isn't the right word because of class but I think just and oh well I think sorry I'm going in different directions but I think also too as we're talking about the brothers like I think in relation to um in particular Daphne's brothers um maybe not so much Antony just because of the like responsibilities he have also but he very much has agency over himself so do her other two brothers I don't know they're not having to like do all of this courting shit the way that women it's just like like the expectation that they're doing that so well I just think like the idea of freedom for women in this time period it's just so infuriating watching it today as a 21st century woman specifically just because like there is no question about if someone has to marry or not um, it's an expectation, and as we see with, like, Eloise, like, even if she didn't want to marry, she has to, and also Daphne understands the reality of her, um, position, which is she has to marry, or else that will affect the rest of her family, and she was willing to, like, marry the prince 
not out of love. And like, sure, her life would have been great. She would have been the princess, but you can obviously tell she was willing to do that and be in an unhappy marriage for the sake of her family, which I think is very brave. But then also once she does marry, you see the freedom that rich married women have when they all go to the the poker game with the Duke's aunt. I'm, I can't remember her name, but she's fabulous and I love her. Lady Danbury. Lady Danbury, when like they can all go and like gamble and drink. Um, I love that scene. But it's like only rich married women can like have that freedom. Whereas like any man in that society can go to a brothel, can go to an art show, can go gamble, can go boxing. Um, so, you know, I think that was like really interesting. And while it was like really pretty to watch, it's something that you have to keep in the back of your mind is like the only time we really only saw like a difference in class was when Lady Featherington was trying to show Marina what her reality would be if she didn't marry someone and had her baby, like she would have been, you know, essentially kicked to the streets. And also, I guess we see like the, the maids and everyone, um, which kind of reminded me of Downton Abbey. One thing I liked about Downton Abbey is that it doesn't just show like the rich people in their lives and their happiness and their struggles. It also shows the maids and the butlers and everything like that. Um, whereas in Bridgerton, they were kind of just like a plot point for gossip. And I felt like they could have done a lot more with that. Um, however, like, you know, I think the audience and the point of the show is like pretty dresses and like empowered women trying to make their own choices. Like how empowered and how free can they actually be in 1800s England? Not the answer is not really. Yeah, I think it does a good job of highlighting the ways in which they aren't empowered and then giving kind of a, I don't know, an alternative narrative in which even in that context, women could be like have power over man, particularly a vulnerable man. Um, and also, I mean, I just want to kind of go back to what I was saying about the just how this is connected to like the conversation about, and I know we'll answer our like, is this feminist question at the end, but just kind of in the conversation about like the, de- like the way in which we define feminism, which I think we're, we're constantly like defining and redefining and being critical of how feminism has been defined. But I think I remember on um, our little women episode, I, or in preparation for that, and I referenced this on that episode, um, I had talked to Sam Young and we were talking about just like decision to marry or to not to marry and things like that. And him saying like, again, like not any kind of crazy or new revelation, but just saying, well, feminism is about choice. And I think um, I've never, I think especially being in like a gender studies, like major in college, you never want, we never like boiled it down to a short sentence like that. But it is like, if I had to, I think that that's one that's really resonated with me. And obviously that's why when Julie, when you were like saying that, I was like, okay, perfect. This is like how we're going to continue to build off the conversations we've already had. But I really do think that like, if there's any piece of, of, I don't know, um, pop culture or media that has like really articulated that kind of question and statement in a series while also 
I don't know, while, while doing it in like a, a context of the past and also being very relevant to the future, like I think it's Bridgerton and I'm definitely, I don't know, I recommend it because I think it, especially if you watch it through this lens and think about these questions, um, it's really worthwhile. But yeah, that was my super long winter. <laughs> I think um, an interesting way to like, I guess maybe like finish this thought yeah. is, um, one of the things that this show did really well was sort of like, I, I really enjoyed the like the actual like cinematography and how they deci decided to depict different things through symbols and things like that. And then something, Pate, that you were talking about was the that the card scene, the gambling scene. And I, I think it's very interesting to bring up um, sort of how the woman who finally had this freedom away from their husbands um, and like had this freedom to themselves to go to this place, how they enjoyed themselves versus if you looked at the man's club and how miserable they were and sort of seeing that, um, the joy that comes with the, the freedom that those women did get. And obviously we can um, go into the nuances of like which women get those. But um, I think that that is like an interesting thing to also look at throughout the show. And it is another way that they show how these choices impact their lives. I love that. And I never realized kind of that like juxtaposition. They're doing essentially the same thing, but the men are like hating their lives. And it's like, well, that's what you get when you like bring on this toxic masculinity. I'm going to talk about that later, but all this like talk of honor and like the family name, like give me a freaking break. No one. Oh, okay. Anyways, I think it's a good time to now talk about this question, which I'm really excited to like get y'all's takes from. So what role does race play in this series? I was, I was thinking about it cause it's kind of unlike anything I've seen where it kind of reimagines the past through representation of race while also acknowledging race. Um, if, does that make sense how I worded that? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I think, does. like, I mean, I think the only other thing that I would say does this maybe, I, I don't think does it, that, like, comes close to doing it is Hamilton, just in how it, um, yes. BIPOC individuals playing historical figures that were white. And I think, um, I don't know, I, I don't, I, 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 Pete in particular, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, um, just because I do think that, it's really interesting the ways in which race is acknowledged, but in a kind of in like in Bridgerton, it's like said, it said like in the past, this was an issue. This is like no longer as much an issue, but I think it also like very much does address like the undertones of the like racial divide. But what do you think? Um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I, I definitely think that it's something I have not, I have not seen before. Um, it, it's, it reminds me, yeah, it's definitely, you can tell it's a Shonda Rhimes show. It reminds me a lot of Scandal, and if you all have seen that, and how the um, Olivia Pope's race is recognized, but it's not a main issue. It's not the main um, point of the show, but they, they do include tension in, in that um, show, showing like interracial, her interracial relationships and, and, and things like that. Um, so it, it was, it reminds me of that in that way. And I do, I think it's very interesting. I'm interested to see if other shows will do things like this. Um, I, th I thought it was, it was pretty refreshing to see. 
yeah. not an all white cast in something that was um takes place in the past and if there were to be people of color in um a show like this in a lot of other scenarios they would be servants servants they would be they would be heavily oppressed and it, they their lives would be awful right or not at all yeah or, or not or at all present, not represented, represented yes. and i think all like what you just said julie really speaks to the fact that like there's there's power and representation but it doesn't need to be like i i think I mean, I don't know. I, I'd be curious to hear others' thoughts on this, but I think just that BIPOC individuals should be able to like watch this and not have to like like and think about representation. And also, white people should be able to watch this and like see a fully representative cast while while not necessarily having it just be about race, like, and about, or about, like, conflict and, Mm -hmm. and oppression. I, I think, like, it's similar to, not all the same thing, but I've been grateful, and I know, Pete, we've talked about how this is, like, not at all the same thing, but we've talked about how we want to talk about Schitt's Creek eventually, and what I love so much about that show is it's, like, homophobia-free. Like, it, it, like, definitely engages with, like, the, with sexuality and talks about it, but it's not, like, the, like, overcoming that adversity isn't necessarily part of the of the well adversity is overcome we will unpack that it's not the main plot and so i think the same is the case here like we can't just like continue to like tell stories in the victorian like era lens and not like make a put a spin on it in a way that is representative. Yeah. I want to just keep making little women's over and over again. Right. But I think it kind of plays into those conversations that we've had as well. Yeah. Y'all made some really good points and I have a few, I hope I can remember them all. So last semester of college, I took medieval literature and I hated it. Sorry, professor Irvin, if you're listening, you're a great professor. I just don't vibe with medieval literature. But um, we read this very interesting critique about people who complain about whitewashing or people who about whitewashing in medieval literature. And like a lot of people were upset recently when the Green Knight, which is a medieval story, was casted with Dan Patel, who is an Indian actor. And a lot of people were upset because he wasn't white. But this this article basically talked about how um, in there were like people of color in medieval times and they weren't just servants. And so we can have representation in medieval literature and in portrayals of medieval literature on screen. Um, And then you even talked about Game of Thrones specifically. Game of Thrones is the most fictionalized story you can think of. There are freaking dragons in there, but you think about it and every main character is white why? Like, it's not based off of anything. There's nothing that dictates that the main characters have to be white. It's just this idea that we think, oh, royal people have to be white. And any people of color in Game of Thrones are, like, the Dothraki, so they're basically slaves. And um, so anyways, like, that just reminded me of this, because if we're doing a historical fiction, a historical fictionalized, like, story like yeah we can have like the gowns and we can have like the societal expectations for women but like we don't always have to have only white people as the main characters if it's fictionalized um and so that's what I have to say about that I I'm really interested about like 
when I first saw the trailer, I was like, wow, this is great. Like, it's basically Pride and Prejudice era with people of color. Like, they deserve to have, like, to be represented in, like, period dramas like this where they're not always, you know, servants like y'all talked about. And so I was kind of, like, surprised when Lady Danbury and Simon brought up that conversation about race and how basically the queen married the king and that allowed for um, people of all races to live in their it was set in England. So like they were like allowed to, you know, all be friends, I guess, happy Dory in England. And part of me was like, why was that conversation even needed? Like I kind of enjoyed just like having no explanation, like, like black people and white people can like live together and a black person can be a Duke and no one questions that. Um, but I think your point is like really important. Um, Julie, what you made about scandal, about how, like, race is brought up, and Nellie, what you just said about Schitt's Creek, like, it's something that's brought up, but, like, racism or homophobia doesn't have to be the main point of it. Um, so, I don't know, like, and Quinn and I actually texted about this. We've texted so much about Bridgerton, and she, like, thought it was, like, really important that that was addressed. So, you know, I would be really interested to see, like, what our listeners thought about it, like, if it was something that they thought needed to be addressed, or if they would have been happy if it was just, you know, just, like, people, like, no explanation. Yeah, I was pretty happy that it was addressed. I, I kind of was wanting them to address it more, but I, I think in the end, I'm glad that it was in the way it was, and I think that, like I said, speaks to the fact that it was made by Shonda Rhimes, and I, I do think that, um, I think it would be a little bit tone deaf to release a show like this and not even address it, like, in the bare minimum way they did during this time, just with all that's happened in this year, and also with, and just in general, like, I mean, I, but especially, I think, as, I think, I'd like to think the, the, the country is buckling into some of these conversations more than they have in the past. And also just, I worry that if, and can you hear that big rumble in the back? I worry that if um, that race had gone completely, it had gone completely unacknowledged. I worry it would be similar to like saying that you don't see color or that you're colorblind. Like you're like, Oh, like things are fine. Like I, I, I don't recognize that. I think Bridgerton does a good job of recognizing that race matters, but this is an an example of, I don't know, not necessarily what could be, because I, I really do think it does, without talking about it, does grapple with the the racial dynamics, particularly in a interracial relationship, even if it's not outwardly saying it, especially when you see the power that Daphne holds as a white woman, um, even though it's not necessarily because she's a white woman, I think seeing that, um, is pretty interesting in today's society. So I don't know. I'd be here, yeah. curious to hear your thoughts, Julie. I think, I think that it could do, I think we, so we, when we first started the show, Nellie, we sort of discussed this idea of like colorblindness and like we watched like the first episode, we sort of brought that up because we really, we didn't realize how it would interact. And I think that we were both pleasantly surprised that it wasn't just entirely, um, you know, people of color playing characters that, you know, you know, we, that, that it wasn't, we're, we were happy that it was addressed essentially. And um, yeah, I think it could set a good precedent for other shows like this to come. Um, I also wanted to plug that there's a really good, there was a good article in the New York Times by 
um, Salamisha, Salamisha Talei, um, that really kind of delves into this. Um, so if, if anyone is interested and wants to think more about this, that it was a good resource. Yeah, and the title is, and I think the title gives a good kind of window into what it talks about, which is Bridgerton takes on race, but its core is escapism. So I think that in itself highlights how like the purpose of, I think the purpose of Bridgerton is to really kind of, I don't know, like, like it says escape into this alternate reality or, or like past, um, like travel back, uh, back in time while also like, I, I, I'm grateful it doesn't tackle race to the point where it would be triggering. Um, as, yeah. like, but at the same time, it, this is a good transition into the next thing, but I think it is triggering in other ways for sure. And I want to name that. So are we good to move on to the next question? I just had like one last point yeah, on the absolutely. idea of race. Just in my opinion, like part of me wonders like, why do we even need to explain why a black person can be in a position of power like a duke not necessarily wonder why like i think how i think how they addressed it was like really great and like i think we've all said like they addressed it enough where it wasn't like a main concern and it was yeah but i guess my only thing my only like i guess not push back to it is i don't necessarily think we have to explain why a black person is in a position of power um and like I don't want that to come off as like me being like oh I don't see color like of course like that is an important conversation to have but like that's just when I was watching it I was like why do we need an explanation like why that Simon is a duke like I just saw him and I was like he's a duke yeah if I, that makes sense I think it's a good, no, point. I think a good point I think it's a good point and I I think well, I don't want to be like, I don't see color, and, like, that's, that's not what I'm coming off. Uh, yeah, that's just, like, that's just... That's no, just but I get, the discomfort, I get the discomfort in it, and I think it's hard to, like, touch on the conversation w- without fully delving into it, um, even though I think that that is what makes the show unique and positive, is that it acknowledges it without... Or, or, yeah, acknowledges it without fully ad- addressing it. Um, yeah. But Moving anyway, on. We can move on, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was something that Julie and I really wanted to talk about, and um, I think it really relates to what we were talking about earlier in, in terms of agency and choice. Um, but before we discuss this question, I want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault, since we will be talking about consent and misconduct. Um, there is one scene in particular in episode six where Simon does not consent to Daphne's actions in the bedroom. And in a Vanity Fair article titled How Bridgerton Handles the Book's Wildly Controversial Scene, Joanna Robinson unpacks how Simon does not want to have children due to his complicated relationship with his father. So he quote, I'm going to read a long quote just because I think she does a good job of kind of setting the scene. He quote, spends the first flush of their honeymoon, which comes three quarters of the way through the book and show practicing one of the least reliable forms of birth control, the pull out method, the pull out method. And Daphne is too sheltered to know that's not how sex is always done, but happy as they are in the early days of their marriage. And they are very happy. Both TV audiences and readers know that there has to be trouble on the horizon. Young Daphne finally figures out what the Duke has been up to and decides 
in both book and show to take matters into her uh, well into her own hands. In the book, it's a spur of the moment decision. In the show, what she does next is much more premeditated. End quote. So you can probably infer what she does, but essentially she doesn't let him pull out as he had been. So she essentially forces him to. I won't say that. She was she was on top and. She did not allow him to pull out, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear y'all's thoughts and your reactions to the scene. Yeah. Reading the Vanity Fair article, the book is, in my opinion, way worse. Um, because she basically takes advantage of him when he's asleep and drunk. And... Well, I don't want to argue that it's way worse because I think any unconsensual sexual act is terrible, Mm -hmm. but the way it's portrayed in the book just seems like he has no agency and is, like, completely taken advantage of. Um, I don't know, like... There are really icky things about both, especially because, like, in the show, it's very premeditated. She, like, knows for a fact she's going to do it. Not to say that, like, planned misconduct is at all like worse is any worse than um unplanned but it's all like all misconduct just to name that so i think the way so and the vanity fair article is really is looking at how it's just like the differences between those two scenes and how like they had decided to address it in the show so i think with the way it's depicted in the show versus the way it's depicted in the book you don't i think at first you don't realize that he she is sexually assaulting him and then they're sort of and like nelly can vouch for this because we were in the same room watching it together a couple seconds after the scene you sort of are like what just happened i feel really uncomfortable why do i feel uncomfortable and you sort of have to unpack that you just watched her sexually assault her husband and that is sort of like it it was a big it's a big scene and it's it's interesting that it's almost I don't want to say low-key because it is really uncomfortable to watch, but it's not done in such an aggressive way that you don't realize at first because I think it's important to, like, include that in our definition of sexual assault. Um, Yeah, and I think it – yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, um, Julie. I think, like, we have this kind of – I, I say we as a society. I, I find myself to be relatively, like, and I know that the three of us are really informed when it comes to, like, consent and misconduct and how we define those things. Um, but I think, like, we as a society, like, have this very narrow view of what misconduct looks like. You can see it and how um, rape cases are processed, like, is, like, impossible. Um, and I think that, um, Oftentimes, like if if the two if the two individuals um, are married, like it's like that doesn't warrant consent. But our society oftentimes thinks so. And same with um, same with thinking about like gender components in misconduct. We oftentimes um, a very small percentage of uh, misconduct is where the perpetrator is a woman and the victim survivor is is a man, but that is like still a, like that is still representation that needs to happen because it does happen. And also the resources for male victim survivors is like are very, very slim and inaccessible and it's conversations that are not happening in those circles. So I do think that like this representation, while 
and also it can happen in a like I, I described it as violent earlier, but if you haven't watched the scene, like, and you, I hope if you, like, if this is content that's triggering that you're not listening right now, I hope you've clicked away, but I, I think if you are able to, it's worth watching just because it, like Julie said, is definitely, like, jarring and harmful, but it's also, like, not what we have in our, like, what is typically divine, defined particularly in television and movies as quote unquote, like rape or misconduct. Like it, it is not this like, again, like I would still define it as violent and aggressive because it is not non-consensual, but it, it in itself is like, like two consult consenting adults until it isn't, you know what I mean? And, and it's, it's not, um, it's, it's forced, but not forceful, if that makes sense. So the, and it, but nevertheless, it is very much still, non-consensual um sexual contact and um and so it and i think it's particularly harmful to think about the scene in the context of um well in general this would be harmful regardless but i think also we know that the duke has a level of trauma already based on his relationship with his father with his father and I do think that the fact that this is a white woman and a black man, I don't think that that is on accident. I do think that there like is an underlying, even though this, this um, show is not directly talking about race. I definitely, I, I know Shonda Rhimes and I know that that was not an accident that this was going to be part of the, the, she was going to provoke some important thinking um, in, in doing this. And yeah I, I, I think y'all's points are really great and help even helping me like self-reflect on how I watched that scene and how I reacted to it because leading up to that I personally was so angry at Simon because he was lying to Daphne about his ability to not have kids and um they just like had a toxic relationship leading up and past that moment like because there were, there was like deceit, there was lies, like there was unnursed trauma that the Duke wasn't um, reflecting on. And so I was like angry, not angry. I was frustrated that this oath he took to his father was more important than the love he had for Daphne. And eventually they addressed that. And so Julie, kind of like you said, when like the act is happening, you don't even realize it. And then until after, and it kind of, not hits you, but all of a sudden you have to like, you have to ask yourself like, oh my gosh, what just happened? That was essentially sexual assault. And like nothing, nothing up to that point, like his trauma, his deceit, that doesn't excuse what happened. And so like that anger I felt for Simon, I had to like completely like dissociate from that when looking at what happened because I still didn't like how he had treated her. I still didn't like that he lied to her, but that is not an excuse. And that doesn't erase what she did and like how she took advantage of him. And I think like, it's taken me, it took me like a few like moments and even like after watching the episode and reading things online about it, like sometimes like, I haven't been able to like come to my thoughts on that until recently. Um, and I think that's probably like 
on purpose. Like you're supposed to, it's supposed to like sit with you and you're supposed to like reflect and be like, I can't be on Daphne's side. I can't like look at her the same after she did that. Um, yeah. But, I, hope it's, I hope it's provoking conversations like this, even if yeah, you are yeah. hosts of podcasts. I think, yeah. And I think you, you sort of touched on this hate where it's like, it doesn't excuse, like, you know, like their relationship, their, even though it's toxic, doesn't excuse her actions here. And one of they, they quote this in the article and it also, it happens. So um, the narrator, our queen, Julie Andrews, says around this time, um, desperate times may call for desperate measures, but I would wager many may think her actions beyond they pale. Perhaps she thought it were it her only option or perhaps, perhaps she knows no shame. But I ask you, could the ends ever justify such wretched means? And I think that sort of ties this into the, um, even more into the conversation about choice, because in, in the way it's, it's shown in the show, it's, it's as if she's choosing to make this decision and have kids and take her own agency, but it ends up being an extremely, an act of violence. Um, and she takes away her husband's choice. So it sort of flips the script there. Yeah, I was literally gonna just going to say like more or less the same thing. I think that, and and to me, it really plays into the question of feminism. Like feminism isn't about women's power. It is about the equality of all genders. So I think that, yeah, I mean, robbing, reclaiming your agency at the expense of any other person's agency, whether it be a man or otherwise, um, is not feminism. So yeah, and there's no question that if the genders were revol- reversed in this scene, it would be obviously a sexual assault scene. But since it's a woman, like it doesn't even it didn't even hit me at first, and I was like, what the heck? Like bad on my part. Like I should have been more. I don't know. Like yeah, I, calling myself out. Like that is on me. But I do think I feel as though it's intentional Mm -hmm. to to sort of um, bring up that exact point of how we, uh, we view sexual assault in society. No. Yeah. I appreciate that. It kind of flips the script in the, the typical context of telling that story. And yeah, it just is really important and does a good job. And I'm excited to continue to have this conversation with other people that have watched it since so many people are watching it. So um, I was still mad about all the toxic masculinity and vowing that I'll never have children because my father was mean to me. Not okay, not, that's not true. He had really bad trauma from his dad. His dad was uh, an asshole. We but, were definitely frustrated the entire time watching it, being like, all these solutions, everything could be solved with the conversation. With one therapy, one therapy. 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 <laughs> I was like, well, damn, was there therapy in Victorian era? <laughs> Victorian counselor. <laughs> you can literally have 20 balls and get a new dress for each ball, but you can't have a freaking therapist. Literally. <laughs> Literally, everyone needed a therapist. They needed someone else to put their issues on. This is a plug for therapy. (laughs) (laughs) We're all our sponsor today is Headspace. (laughs) I wish our sponsor was Headspace. (laughs) Headspace sponsor us. Better health. (laughs) Better health. (laughs) Give us some money and then we'll give it away. Thank you. All right, so we've talked about a lot of good points, had a lot of self-reflection, came to the conclusion that everyone needs therapy. 
but we have to ask the age-old question, is Bridgerton a feminist TV show? I have thoughts. I can't wait for them, please. Okay, um, I'll say this with a caveat that I'm sure if we went back to many of our previous episodes, I might redefine it based on how I'm defining feminism now. I might like redefine some of my answers, but I'll stand by, I'll leave those in the past. And sorry, I just hit Julie in saying <laughs> that. I'll leave those in the past and, um, and focus on Bridgerton. But I think because of the conversations that Bridgerton provokes surrounding the intersection of gender, class, race, um, and a lot of things that relate to those issues like consent, um, marriage, gender power dynamics. Um, yeah, I, I, and, and a vast majority of other things. I think because Bridgerton provokes conversations like these um, and also gives like a new, tells a, a new story both um kind of like what I was saying earlier and and just so much that like in particular Julie and I have been talking about when as we've been watching um just how it really does give a scope give kind of the full in my opinion a, the the best representation I've seen thus far this might be a hot take the best best representation I've seen thus far of the scope of women's choice or lack thereof um not to steal your thesis, but to really kind of borrow from what Julie said. Um, I think that it, that what you, how you kind of set us up for that conversation um, definitely has informed my answer. And I would say, yes, um, I would actually, I would say that Bridgerton is a feminist TV show um, through its, or sorry, an intersectional feminist TV show through the, conversations it provokes and the the representation um and just its themes so um honestly it's probably one of the things we've talked about the most that I would be like least critical of in terms of I I think it does a lot of things really well I'd be curious what y'all would not like um I don't have any like super I don't have any crazy qualms with Bridgerton at the moment I honestly my only qualm is how happy the ending was I I was kind of frustrated by that. You don't like happy endings? It felt fake, fake. I I can I can see that. I can I see, also I think feel after- like some things did go unresolved. Like I understand that like I appreciate that they like had a conversation and solved their issues, but I also think that like since we just spent all this time talking about this one in particular moment of unconsensual action like to me I wanted Daphne to get a little bit more coming towards her as a perpetrator um but I don't know we didn't we were going to talk a little bit more about this I I don't know if there's going to be more Bridgerton um I'm there is a I, thousand percent sure there'll be a season two just based off of how many people are watching it now yeah Netflix wants that check they're I going to make a season did a good two. job of like I mean I can't imagine a, sh- a show Shonda Rhimes creating not blowing up but I think they did a good job of like either kind of wrapping it up in case for whatever reason it didn't do well and then also really setting the setting the tone for the next um bit but at the same time like 
So for that reason, I think that's why the ending was like cheerful and like, oh, there's a baby. Yay. I don't know. But like, I, I, um, that would be my only qualm, but in terms of feminism, like I, I, it's got, it's got a yes for me. I I would also (laughs) say that I would also say, I think I would agree. I think I would say yes. Um, I think it definitely has like a place in sort of in feminism and it, and it plays with, it really goes back to us discussing how saying feminism about choice. And I would say that this whole, the entire theme of the entire show is about choice. Um, and, and all, there is so much um, playing with gender and how um, gender impacts um, your place in society and particularly in this time and impacts your choices. Um, so yeah, I would agree. And I think if there were another season, uh, I'd be interested to see how they delve more into Eloise and delve more into Benedict and their choices mm-hmm. because they both sort of want to do, like, go off the beaten path. And I really love that. And the I Prince really want to see more about that. The Prince Harry's of the situation. I'd love to see more <laughs> of that if, if, if it continues. Uh, excellent points made around the table. Um, Honestly, I didn't know what I was going to say when I, when I asked the question. And if I was using my argument from the Baby It's Cold Outside episode, then the answer would be no, because in that episode I said, I don't think a form of media can be empowering if the time period itself wasn't allowing women to be empowered. But I honestly might go back on that now, kind of just based off of the conversation we just had, because... I just think y'all's points were, like, so valid. Like, a feminist TV show, it doesn't have to be perfect, but if it incites those conversations and makes you self-reflect and, like, become a better person and can, like, help you call yourself out, like, I think that is, like, grounds for being feminist. And I really hope there is a season two and we see more of Eloise and we see more of my queen Peggy. Penelope. Why did I call her Peggy? Oh my god. Hamilton. Hamilton. And Peggy. Um, Peggy energy. But yeah, I mean, like, she's the I just, I'm obsessed with Bridgerton. And also, if you're gonna call Pride and Prejudice feminist, like, Bridgerton for sure is feminist, because Pride and Prejudice is white, as, but I don't want to curse. In case any future employers listen to this. Hire me. Uh, but all to say yes I think it's feminist with it's problematic it's got it's like problems but there's no such thing as a perfect tv show absolutely agreed any last thoughts on Bridgerton I love it watch it on Netflix if you haven't already or rewatch please like legit someone like like dm us I want to know everyone's thoughts about it dm us um well, thanks, Julie, for being on the podcast. Thank thanks, Queen. Um, before <laughs> we wrap up, um, just to give a reminder, we gave our um, action items up top, um, but we encourage you to check out the Palm Collective, Medics for Justice, Frontline, Frontline Women DC, and Fair Fight. And as always, we have a quote from the... TV show to close out the episode and Julie is going to share that with us. Yes. So at the very beginning of the show, our queen, Julie Andrews, who I'm not named after, but I like to tell myself I am, (laughs) says, but as we know, the brighter a lady shines, the faster she may burn. Damn. That's kind of sad. It is kind of sad, but I do think it's the tone. It's true. 
Julie and Julie. Forget Julia, Julie and Julia. Have you ever heard of Julie and Julie? Julie? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Peyton, not like that. <laughs> no, I'm editing. It's not staying in. Okay. Okay. Um, Thanks so- for coming on, Julie. Um, this has been Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens. Bye. Bye. Bye.